Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2014, volume 52, number three. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm the editor. This month's editorial focuses on the problem of polypharmacy. And we highlight a recent King's Fund report, which describes some of the issues facing clinicians. James, what's the issue you see as, as the major one for patients in your practice? I think there's this tension between increasingly we're being advised by uh, guidelines and things like that that we should be prescribing more to the elderly. So we've had some big studies done recently that showed that hypertension prescribing was important in the elderly. Statin prescribing probably is also quite important. Um, So the days have gone uh, when we had geriatricians who would just, uh, if they saw one of your patients and outpatients, would just stop everything, all their drugs, because we now realise that actually it can be appropriate to have lots of drugs uh, when you're elderly. So we've got the, the, the well-recognised challenge of, of an ageing population, people with lots of conditions, lots of concomitant conditions, an evidence base that tells us for individual conditions that if you treat with a set drug regime, you will get a benefit, albeit a benefit defined from clinical trials in patients probably with a single disorder or a single disease, and a set of guidelines and almost payment processes that encourage us to treat as much as we can, resulting in patients on how many medicines? Well, I mean, depending on how many other diseases you've got, if you might have diabetes, hypertension, and perhaps Parkinson's disease, let's say you might be on 12 drugs, perhaps taken over, you know, over a course of the day, and uh, with all the associated side effects. And that's the issue. You're absolutely right. The problem we have is we have individual randomized controlled trials done usually in fit, healthy, single morbidity patients telling us one thing. And sat in front of us is an elderly, frail patient with four different problems. Uh, and is it appropriate in that situation to follow the guidelines or not? And that's one of the things, obviously, we want to discuss in the editorial. And we go down the route of, of identifying, as from the King's Fund report, that for some people, it's completely appropriate. 12 meds, no problems, getting a benefit and should continue on them. For other people, even the same set of medicines may be a problem. Precisely. And so that's what they call uh, problematic uh, polypharmacy. And I, th- I think the difficulty is we we have very few clear parameters to look at when we're looking at patients to know what is best for that patient. And I think increasingly we'll need to be working with our patients about discussing what they want and don't want from their drugs. And the bottom line is don't forget that for every patient who's on a cocktail of medicines, there is always a good time to review and check whether they are all still needed. And whether they're all still being taken as well, of course, because we know that so many aren't taken. Uh, That's probably a subject for another editorial altogether. Indeed. Our first main article this month is a review of a drug called Dupoxetine, which has recently been launched in the UK for the management of premature ejaculation. Uh, Dupoxetine, short-acting SSRI, is it is it new to us this one um it's a newly licensed drug for us um it's the only drug licensed for the use uh in premature ejaculation 
we have lots of evidence on using other drugs in the management of this condition. And in fact, a lot of those other drugs have been other SSRIs. Uh, but this is the only one that's actually licensed for that use only. And it's a short acting SSRI. And therefore, it's used on an on-demand basis. That's the point. So you use it an hour to three hours before sex rather than taking it every day. So the evidence we've got for it is based on its largely on its on-demand use. Yes, indeed. And the primary outcome of most studies is a numerical measure of the what's known as the IELT, yes, intravaginal indeed. ejaculation latency time. Indeed. And for most of the trial results that we've seen, this is increasing from maybe one minute to two minutes. That's right. I mean, there was obviously a lot of the trials uh, used a set of criteria to before they even let people into the trial. And very often that had to be an IELT of less than two minutes. Um, and if you look at the difference between depoxetine and placebo, because it's only been tested versus placebo, we're talking about a mean difference of about, um, I think it was 0.9 of a minute, wasn't it? Between placebo, placebo and, and depoxetine. So it works um, and it statistically works, but we're not talking about a huge time difference. And if you look at, they, they haven't compared depoxetine with the other drugs that we have evidence for, but if you look at the evidence for the other drugs, that does look better um, than depoxetine. So if you look at drugs like um, peroxetine that's been used, not on demand, but something you take on a daily basis, uh, that's been shown to have a bigger increase in time with your IELT um, than, than we seem to show with depoxetine. But of course, the, the difficulty we've got is, is different studies, Precisely. different it, it's patient your, groups, different measures, different outcomes, and different time it, periods. It's the classic dilemma we seem to have these days in the sense that drugs get licensed with studies on placebo and we're left thinking, well, is it really any better than what we've got at the moment or not? Because no one's done the comparative studies. And the, the, the other difficult challenge, perhaps, for a drug which is um, essential to perhaps a successful relationship is that the outcome is based on a measure of, of performance. Precisely. And, and not on overall. Yeah, it, it's a numbers game. And, and frankly, you know, when you l listen to how they worked out the numbers, um, the timings, it was done with partners stopwatch. Um, frankly, that doesn't sound like a very uh, a romantic occasion at all. Uh, and from a health service point of view any guidance appeared on this drug so far uh no it's been a complete blank i'm not aware of any national stuff from england scotland or wales about this at the moment locally uh most areas are having to fend for themselves and produce guidance for them for, for their local prescribers okay thank you and the second main article this this month is is the first in a two-part series um on the management of post-traumatic stress disorder um, part one, which we cover this month, looks at some of the background issues, diagnostic issues, and uh, psychological treatments. And then part two, the following month, we'll look at some of the uh, pharmacological interventions. Um, PTSD, a common problem in primary care? Uh, yes. I mean, I th I, we, we, we discussed this, um, you know, about 50 to 75% of people have some sort of traumatic uh, experience in their lives, and about 10 to 20% of cases, they have persistent symptoms of anxiety or depression associated with that. 
So I think it is a common common problem for us in general practice. I think it's possibly uh, missed more than we realise as well. So at the moment, diagnosis, bit of an issue, people aren't picked up and identified as soon as we should be? I, I suspect so. I mean, I'm just on my own experience. I think certainly we sometimes see patients with anxiety and depression and we don't explore perhaps the causes of that. Uh, and I think sometimes patients are unaware that actually, you know, we only experience our own lives and I think sometimes we don't understand perhaps how just how traumatic they are until we discuss them with other people. And in terms of the psychological interventions that we talk about, are they easily accessible? It, I think this is very variable. Um, increasingly, talking therapies are available to uh, patients all around the country, but I think it is a variable feast. I think what's one of the really positive measures, thoughts that came out for me from this study is that it doesn't seem to matter how long it takes you to get to psychological services uh, after your post-traumatic event, the outcomes are just as good. So um, if you present late, uh, you're not losing out. And I think that's probably quite a positive thing to be able to tell patients that even if it happened years and years ago, you know, the chance of success is just as much as if you present earlier. And the one thing it struck me that you probably shouldn't be doing is the immediate debriefing after an event. That's right. I mean, I, I remember from a personal experience of colleagues of mine involved in the uh, Clapham rail crash uh, where they were an ethetist and they were all advised to go and have a debrief immediately afterwards because it was thought to be a good thing. That's now considered to be not a good thing at all. Uh, and the whole idea of a, a debrief that you should have immediately after a traumatic event is definitely something that should be consigned to history. No evidence that it does any good. No evidence at all. Thank you. And finally, I thought we'd just pick one item from DTP Select this month. And there's a paper that we've reviewed which looked at the problem of vitamin or identifying vitamin B12 deficiency in patients taking acid suppression drugs. Um, and it reports a study which looked at patients who have taken either uh, H2 receptor antagonists or PPIs and seem to show an association with patients who had low vitamin B12 levels. Yes, this is, this is I think, a story that's going to grow and grow. Um, vitamin B12, uh, natural vitamin B12 rather than tablet form, but if you are eating B12 in its natural steak, state, even in steaks um, or wherever it might be, it uh, needs to be cleaved from its protein with acid. So that's why we think that perhaps acid suppression has an impact on your ability to absorb B12. That's at least the working thoughts behind it. But this is, an, this is one of a number of studies now that seems to show that certain drugs interfere with B12 absorption. Um, and I think there's a growing realisation that elderly frail patients who are often taking uh, proton pump inhibitors or H2 receptor antagonists are more at risk of B12 deficiency. So possibly not enough for us to do routine testing on all these patients, but it might be a consideration if you get a result that suggests there's a problem, have a look at the drugs they're on. Precisely. I think that's that's the point. We're certainly not suggesting that people should be screened routinely. But a lot of us um, have got patients, elderly patients now, and with increasing with our database systems we use, our computerized systems, you can actually look at their MCV and you know watch that. Um, and clearly with that shows signs of macrocytosis. It might be an indication that you need to do B12. Good. Thank you very much.
To read these and any other articles in DTP, please visit our website, dtp.bmj.com.